Beverly and I have known Clyde and Kay Glazner for about 40 years or so, actually longer than that. Uh, Clyde was my professor of baby Greek, first year Greek in seminary, and we were members of the church at, in Bedford, First Baptist Church Bedford for a couple of years before they moved to Arkansas and we moved to England. And we had not seen each other for well over a dozen years, and Clyde and Kate came back to Fort Worth. And of course, he became pastor here. And we still hadn't seen them. It had been about 15 years. They'd been here about three years. And we went to a home goods store, went out into the parking lot, and Beverly saw Kay across the parking lot. And she said, there's Kay. And she went over there, and she hugged her, and she said, Kay, it's great to see you again. I hadn't seen you in so long. And the lady looked at her and backed up and said, well, sweetie, I, I'm glad that you're happy to see me, but I'm not Kay. <laughs> now, I tell that story with Beverly's permission, okay? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not dissing her. But the point is, things are not always what they appear to be, nor are people. You know, it's an humbling thing to Google yourself on the internet. How many of y'all have done that? Probably out of curiosity, most of you have. Well, if you Google Jim Spivey, you will not find me. Not in the first place or the second place or the third or fourth or fifth. And then you get about to number seven, eight, and nine, and you get into the obituaries, and I'm still not there, fortunately. <laughs> I'm about number 10. But the only reason that I'm there is because I'm pastor of Gamble Street Baptist Church. The number one, you probably know, he's 10 years younger than I. He's 63 years old. In the 1980s, he was probably the most famous middle distance runner in America. James Calvin Spivey, he attended Indiana University. He uh, won the men's championship in the 1500 meter in 1982. I've never been to an Olympics. I've never even been to a city that held the Olympics during that time. He ran in three of them. He won the bronze medal at the World Championship in Rome in 1987, and in the same year won the silver medal in the 1500 at the Pan American Games in Indianapolis. And he still holds the U.S. record for the 2,000 meter, which he set in 1987. You see, things and people and names are not what they appear to be. There are a lot of Jim Spiveys, a lot of different versions. You know, when you think about Jesus, people didn't know what to make of him. When we think about him today, we of course think of not, of course, we as Christians accept him as Lord and Savior. But around the globe, he, regardless of what people think about his being the Son of God, or they disbelieve that, regardless of what they think about the theological aspect of it, probably the most famous person that ever lived. And people quote him all the time. People honor him and respect him. But people in his own day did not know what to think about him. A carpenter from Galilee is the background of our story today in John the seventh chapter. People simply did not know what to think about Jesus. You see, we have to be careful 
that we don't judge based on appearances because that's what they were doing. The background of the story today is, in fact, that despite the many miracles that he had performed in Galilee, he healed all kinds of diseases and cast out demons and cleansed lepers and raised the dead. He cured the blind and the lame and the mute. He calmed the storm. He turned water into wine in Cana. He fed 5,000. And in the story today in John the seventh chapter, not long before that in Jerusalem, he had healed a man that had been ill for 38 years near the pool of Bethesda. And it caused a great, great commotion throughout Jerusalem. Despite all of that, after he fed the 5,000, he went back to Capernaum and he preached. And when he finished preaching that sermon, what did the people do? They actually began to leave him. Why? Because he said that the Son of Man is going to return from whence he came. He's going to return to heaven. And the illusion was very clear. He was speaking of himself as the Christ and that he was going to go back to heaven. And they did not understand that. But the thing that really bothered them was he said, if you are going to experience the resurrected life that I can give, you must eat my body, you must eat my flesh, and you must drink my blood. And they were scandalized by that. And they then began to abandon him. He was abandoned. And I think he was disappointed in that. The Bible doesn't say so. But he'd made this earlier observation in John the fourth chapter. He said, you know, unless you people see signs and wonders, unless you people see miracles, you simply will not believe. But in fact, he has just performed this great miracle of feeding the 5,000. And even though they had followed him up to that point, because he was doing miracles, because he was feeding them, even though they had followed him up to that point, when he began to preach the truth, when he preached this sermon, then what did they do? They did not believe. They stopped following him. Jesus was threatened in his own ranks. He had a traitor. After the feeding of the 5,000 in John the sixth chapter, it says that he already knew it, that he said that there was a devil amongst them, and of course that was Judas. Jesus was threatened. The Jews in Judea, at the beginning of this chapter, we're not going to read verse 1, but at the beginning of this chapter, the Jews of Judea were in fact threatening to kill him. Jesus was misunderstood. His own brothers, who were not believers yet, his own brothers wanted to act as his PR agents. They advised him, listen, Jesus, you know, you need to leave this backwater place of Galilee. You need to go somewhere where your talents aren't wasted, where you're not doing these things in relative secrecy. You need to go into the spotlight. You need to go down south to Judea. The Feast of Booths, which was celebrated just this past week as we prayed about. The Feast of Booths, you see. People are coming from all over the world, the diaspora. And all the Jews from Israel will be there. And you need to go there. You need to demonstrate your power. You need to perform these things, these miracles that you're performing down there. In other words, they were saying, you know, you need to stop sermonizing. You need to take more direct action. You need to go on the offensive. Go to the very stronghold of the religious power and overwhelm them with your power. Rally all the Jews that are there at the Feast of the Booths and convince the religious movers and shakers of who you really are in Jerusalem, and they'll throw you their support. 
And there was great anticipation. In Jerusalem, there were people that had begun to look for him, this prophet from Galilee, and he, it had caused quite a stir amongst the Jews. But Jesus was reluctant to go. He told them that his time had not yet come. Well, you stop and think about it. It was October. He's about 32 years old. It was in the, la- the beginning of the last year of his ministry, and it was six months yet before the time of the, of course, what we would call the Easter season, the Passion Week. Of course, the Passover. So he sent his brothers ahead of him, intending not to go, but then he changed his mind. And when he went, he went as in secret. So let's stand together as we take a look at the text and as we read it. John, the seventh chapter, beginning in verse number 10. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one deed. And you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I make an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's be seated. You see, people disagreed about Jesus' identity. How could he be so learned and yet not be educated? What they were saying was he'd never been to a rabbinical school. He had no formal standing in the academic community. And yet we know from other accounts that the people were amazed that he taught with authority, authority not like the scribes and the teachers of the law. He taught with more authority. They, they were confused about who he was. Was he good or was he one who led the people astray? And the word there literally means a deceiver. Was he demon-possessed? This is what the crowd spontaneously says. It's not because they were prompted by the leaders to say this. They listen to him and they say, who wants to kill you? Are you paranoid? Are you insane? And the charge that he was demon-possessed is linked back to what they had said earlier. For you see... 
The deceiver of the people that leads them astray was following the deceiver, Satan. But the crowd did not know this. They did not know that, in fact, for some, times, for some time, the religious leaders had, in fact, been pursuing Jesus. They had been seeking to kill him. The Jews, that is, the Aramaic-speaking Jews and the leaders of them, had been angry with him ever since John, the fifth chapter, because he had broken the Sabbath by healing the man that had been ill for 38 years. After he had healed the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath and marked the third chapter, the Pharisees had colluded with the Herodians and had sought to kill him. People disagreed about his identity, but he was a man that was being hunted. You see, they misunderstood his message, his authority, and his purpose. We can see from this passage. They misunderstood his message, his teaching. It wasn't his own. He said, my message is from the one who sent me, my father. They understood, misunderstood his authority. He said, it's not my authority by which I speak, but my father's authority. They misunderstood his purpose. It wasn't to glorify himself. It was to glorify the father. And all of these things that they misunderstood was rooted in a, an earlier claim that he had made in the fifth chapter of John. You see, he said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. They also misjudged his actions, not just who he was. When we look at this passage, they were splitting legalistic hairs when they condemned him. On the one hand, they marveled in chapter 5 when he healed the man by Bethesda pool. But on the other hand, they opposed him. They opposed him because he commanded the man by the pool then to pick up his pallet and walk. And you see, that was considered what? That was considered work on the Sabbath. So they were splitting legalistic cares and misjudging his actions. And Jesus then in this passage responds to this kind of disingenuousness. He says, you know, if it's lawful for you to do the work of circumcision on the Sabbath, you're actually doing work when you do this and you bring a child into the covenant community through circumcision and you just touch one part of his body. You touch one part of him to make him religiously whole. You touch one part of him to bring him into the covenant community. Then why? Why is it unlawful then when I heal on the Sabbath? Because when I heal on the Sabbath, I don't touch just one part of the body. I've made him completely whole. You see, this is supportive of his previous assertion. What did he say when, what did he, say when he was accused of breaking the law when his disciples then picked grain in the fields on the Sabbath? He said what? The Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man hmm, is Lord even of the Sabbath. You see, what is at stake in this passage, as well as the one that I just quoted, is Jesus' very identity. The miracles proved that he was the Son of Man. The miracles proved that he not only was the Son of Man, he was the Christos, he was the expected one. And these miracles that he had performed, including the healing of the man that had been ill for 38 years, suggested that he was the Son of God and the Savior of the world. What he's saying in this passage today is, don't be fooled. Things are not always as they appear to be. 
Things aren't the way they look on the face is literally what it means in the Greek. Things aren't the way they look on the outside. In other words, don't judge with human eyes. And the passage that we read from the from Psalm this morning said essentially that. Don't judge with human eyes. Don't judge with shallow misperceptions. But judge, and here's the key phrase, judge with righteous judgment. Look more deeply. And what I think he means there is we have to be careful. And he was telling them they had to be careful. When you judge, do the things you hear fit God's teaching and his will? When you judge with righteous judgment, do these things glorify the Father or do they glorify yourself? And when you judge with righteous judgment, do they fit an accurate description of who Jesus himself really was? You see, Jesus was not who he appeared to be. In that day, and friends, for a lot of people today, Jesus is not who he appears to be. They had mistaken attitudes and views about Jesus. They disrespected him. Now, that's hard for us to believe after 2,000 years and his vaunted position in the minds of most people in the world today. But he was, in their eyes, just a carpenter. And Nazareth, they said, isn't this Mary's son and the brother? And they list the brother's names. And he has sisters, too. He was a prophet without honor in his own hometown. They saw him as the son of Joseph, and when they said that, and we know who Joseph's parents were. This is the grandkid. He was just a carpenter. His own family thought that he was crazy, that he was out of his mind. In Capernaum, he was so crowded in the house that he did not even have time to eat, and his family went to take charge of him because they thought that he had lost his mind. When he went in to heal Jairus' daughter, they didn't respect him. They laughed at him almost rebuked him when he went into the room to raise her from the dead. I wonder what they thought when she walked out. Peter disrespected Jesus. After Jesus had said that he was going to Jerusalem and he was going to be killed and then raised on the third day, what did Peter do? He rebuked Jesus. At his crucifixion, we know that the soldiers mocked and beat and spit upon him. The crowds and the religious leaders hurled insults at him. He was disrespected. It's in fulfillment of what Isaiah said. Isaiah 55, you know it well. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. He was disrespected. He was not what he appeared to be. They misperceived his identity. He was in the eyes of many, another prophet. You know, Jesus said, well, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say that you're one of the prophets like Jeremiah. John, the seventh chapter, a little bit later after the passage that we read, they, many of them believe that he is the prophet that is to come like Moses. The Samaritan woman in the middle of that dialogue, then in John, the fourth chapter, remember what she said? She said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Some of them saw him as a great teacher. This is what Nicodemus says. He says, you know, I know that you're a great teacher from God. Otherwise, no one could do the works that you're doing. And here in this passage, in verse number 15, they were amazed that he was so learned, even though he had not been to rabbinical school. 
Some thought he was a prophet. Some thought that he was a teacher. And of course, many expected him to be a king, the national deliverer of Israel. Time and time and time again, we see this. After the feeding of the 5,000, remember they sought him so that they might make him king. The Pharisees were looking for the son of David. At the triumphal entry, the crowds then yell, here comes the son of David, Hosanna. James and John, and even their mother, must have thought the same thing because when he came into his kingdom, they wanted to have a place of honor. The Jews persuaded Pilate with this charge. They said that he's threatening Rome because he is calling himself the king of the Jews, even his disciples. On the road to Emmaus, the two that talked to Jesus expressed to him, not knowing who he was, that they had so hoped that he would redeem Israel. And even after they knew who he was, at Pentecost, the disciples then asked him in the first chapter, they said, is it now that you are going to do what? To restore the kingdom of Israel. So they, many of them thought he was a prophet. Others thought he was a teacher. Many thought he was a king. The high priest saw him as a sacrifice for the nation after the resurrection of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus. He said, it is necessary for one to be the sacrifice for the nation, hoping that this would unify the Jews. Many saw him as a lawbreaker. In this passage, some said he leads the people astray. He defied the purity code in Mark, the seventh chapter. He broke the Sabbath on numerous times. Many saw him as demon-possessed, as we see in this passage today, but it's not the only time. He was accused two other times of being demon-possessed. After he had exercised, after he had cast out the demon in the blind mute man, the scribes and the Pharisees accused him of being under Satan's power. The Jews, a little bit later after this passage in John the 8th chapter, because He had accused them not of following their father Abraham. They then say that he is demon-possessed. So there were all of these misperceptions about who Jesus really was. You see, he was not who he appeared to be. They were offended by his actions. Obviously, at the beginning of John's gospel in the second chapter, you can imagine the reaction of the people after he drove the money changers out of the temple. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. He publicly associated with and talked with women of questionable reputation, like the Samaritan woman at the well and the woman caught in adultery. He let his disciples break the law by picking the grain in the, in the field, as we said. He touched the unclean, the leper who came to him in Galilee. He didn't just command the leprosy to go away. He touched him. He let the woman with the issue of blood who was unclean, touched the hem of his garment. He healed on the Sabbath. He broke the law at least five times there are occasions in the Gospels where he did this. He rebuked the religious officials as hypocrites. In Matthew, the 23rd chapter, there's a catalog of their offenses that he lists, and he calls them whitewashed sepulchers against the scribes He described them as self-important and vain robbers of widows. He told the parable of the wicked tenants in that Passion Week in the temple, and he spoke it against the chief priests and the Pharisees. And he warned his disciples 
not to take the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Herod. He offended everyone. Not only that, they were offended by the fact that he acted like God. Remember when they lowered the, the paralytic through the roof? The first thing that he said was, son, your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sin, but that's not the only time he did it. The woman caught in adultery when she leaves. He looked at her and he said, I do not condemn you. He acted like God, forgiving sin, and he spoke as God. He called God his father and made himself equal with God. So they not only misperceived who he was in his persona, in his, in his personhood, they also were offended by his actions. And they also misunderstood his message. When he had cleansed the temple and they wanted a sign for who he really was and what gave him the authority to do that, he said, what, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And this became one of the accusations against him before the religious officials later. They misunderstood it. They thought he was talking about destroying Herod's temple. When he said, you must be born again to Nicodemus, Nicodemus did not have a clue. He said, that's impossible. How can a person go back into his mother's womb and be born again? They misunderstood his message. When he said to the woman at the well that he would give her living water, she thought that what he was talking about was a perpetual fountain that she would not have to come back to the well again and again. When he told his disciples, I have food to eat that you know not of, they thought he had just had lunch, not that he was talking about the will of the Father. When he told the folks after the feeding of the 5,000 that they should, have, they should eat living bread, bread that endures, they thought that he was talking about feeding them again as he had fed them before, not eternal bread. In this chapter, a little bit later, at the Feast of Booths on the last day, he then stands and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And they misunderstood that. They did not understand that what it meant was he was talking about the pouring out of the Spirit that had not yet occurred. You see, they misunderstood his message over and over and over again. In this passage, they were offended when he said to them that you do not obey Moses' law. But actually, this amplifies an earlier criticism that he had made. In the fifth chapter of John, he said, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you set your hope. For, you see, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. They were offended by his claims that he made. A little bit later in John, the eighth chapter, when he says, Before Abraham was, I am. They picked up stones to throw at him because they knew that he was claiming to be God himself. When he said in John the 10th chapter, I and the Father are one, the Jews then tried to seize and stone him. The point in all of this is they misperceived who he was. They were offended by his actions and they misunderstood his message. You see, Jesus was not who he appeared to be. So how do we apply this? I think, first of all, you know, we're in this series looking at the imperatives of Jesus. Remember what the Father said, this is my Son whom I love. Do what? Listen to Him. We must obey His command. What does He say in the 24th verse? John 7, 24 here. What does He say? The last verse. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge according to righteous judgment. Now, what does that mean? 
I think it means this when you look at this passage. Righteous judgment, according to Jesus, means this. We need to see Jesus for who he really is and not who he appears to be. Recognize his true identity. We need to know that the actions that he performed fulfill God's will according to glorifying the Father. And we need to understand and believe his message that it comes from the Father for our ultimate good. We need to see Jesus for who he really is. He's not just a prophet. He's God's ultimate prophet greater than Moses. He's not just a teacher. He is the master rabbi who calls us to sacrificial service in following him as disciples. He's not just an earthly king. You know what I'm going to say. He is the what? He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is not a scapegoat for the nation, but the lamb of God who sacrificed himself for all humankind. He is not a lawbreaker. He is God's law fulfiller. He is not demon-possessed. He, in fact, has all authority and dominion over Satan and all of his legions. You see, God is his Father because he's the only begotten Son of God. He and the Father are one because he has been and always has been part of the triune eternal Godhead. He is the Son of Man, the Christ, the expected one, the Lord and Savior of all mankind. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. We need to see Jesus, and we need to proclaim Jesus today unashamedly for who He is. We need to know that His actions fulfilled God's will and glorified the Father. For he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to do what? To fulfill them. And he did them in every way. He kept all of the law and the prophets. And then he became the sacrifice that fulfilled them. He even now is accomplishing the will of the Father. And what is that? In the previous chapter, it's very clear. As he tells them after he has fed the 5,000, as he crosses the sea and the crowds gather there, he says, for this is the will of the Father. That everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. And even now He is making intercession at the right hand of God the Father Almighty for those who believe in Him as Lord and Savior, so they might be saved. He is even now fulfilling the will of the Father, so that the Father may be glorified. And we know that He says in John, the 14th chapter, the 15th chapter, what that means. What does it mean for the Father to be glorified? It means that people follow Jesus Christ as His disciples, and they bear much fruit. We need to know that His actions today even are fulfilling the will of the Father. And we need to believe His message that it came from the Father for our ultimate good. What is the final product of this formula that we have looked at, this righteous judgment, knowing him for who he is, knowing that he is fulfilling the will of the Father and glorifying him and believing his message, the final product is this. He says in John, the fifth chapter, what is righteous judgment and the emphasis on judgment? He said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not does not come under judgment, but has passed from death into life. You see, the message is today, we are all sinners. Each one of us has condemned ourselves in the sight of God and separated us from the love of God by our sin. 
And the righteous judgment of God is, and the, the payment for that is, of course, death and captivity to sin. But the righteous judgment of God doesn't stop there. We know that he offers us eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. So what do we do? We follow then, if we obey this, we follow Jesus' examples in all of this. Just like he did. We speak not our own words. We speak not by our own power when we go out from this place of worship. We speak the words of him who sent Jesus. We speak the word of the Father which we have in his holy word given to us. If we follow what Jesus did, we seek not our own will and our own purpose, but we seek to do his will and to be obedient to God. And we do not glorify ourselves, but we glorify our Father who is in heaven. If we do that, friends, you know what it means. People are going to misunderstand us. They're going to misperceive who we are, and they're going to be offended by our actions just as Jesus was. If we do these things, if we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Son of Man and the Son of God, the righteous Savior of the world, and we do that with clarity and without apology, if we seek the will of God and to glorify Him, and we speak not our words, but the words of him who sent Jesus, people are going to disrespect us and our Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to misunderstand and misinterpret our message, and they're going to be offended, and they're going to misjudge our actions. And so how do we respond? You see, some get their fight on when they are offended by people being offended. When people misunderstand them, they then become pugnacious, but that's not what Jesus did. No, he was patient. He was faithful. Whatever the world said about him, he obeyed the Father. Regardless of the storm of life, regardless of what people said about him, he was faithful to do the will of the Father, and that's what he expects us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have called us to be disciples of your son, Jesus Christ. And sometimes it is not easy. Sometimes as we go out and witness in the world, people look at us just like they did Jesus in his, in his day. They misunderstand the message. They disrespect the person. And they're offended by what we do and what we say. But keep us mindful that we live in a dark world full of sin where people have been blinded by the evil one. Help us to be patient. Help us to be loving. Help us to be kind. That we will be faithful and persistently share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they might come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And the scales of their eyes might be lifted and they might see him for who he really is. And they will judge with a righteous judgment and come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.